You're listening to sermons from Redeemer Church in Round Rock, Texas. Redeemer is a gospel-centered, missional family learning and living the way of Jesus in the suburbs of Austin. Well, over the past few weeks, we have been in a series called Good News, and we have looked at uh, the gospel of Jesus. And we saw two weeks ago that the gospel is primarily and foremost a historical message about what Jesus did in real time and history. We saw that Jesus entered into our world as the Savior King. He lived a sinless life. He was crucified. He was buried. He was raised on the third day. He appeared to many witnesses over a period of 40 days. And eventually he ascended into heaven where he now continues to reign as King. And this message about Jesus and what he has done and accomplished is to be proclaimed to all Nations and anyone who would receive the message with faith and give Jesus their trusting allegiance would receive the benefits of forgiveness, the benefit of, of freedom from sin, the benefit of being welcomed as God's adopted children into his family, and a benefit of a glorious resurrection future. And so last week, we saw that the gospel is not only historical, it's not only a message, but it has deeply personal benefits for us. And this morning, we're going to look at how the gospel is relational. The message about Jesus carries with it a transforming power for the way we relate to other people. And here's the main idea I want us to see today, that the gospel instructs and empowers us toward a new way of relating with others that is characterized by love. The gospel instructs and empowers us toward a new way of relating with others that is characterized by love. And while this new way of relating does not earn our place in God's family, we are there by his grace, it does uh, give evidence and assurance that we are indeed his children. So let's pray and then we'll jump in together to this. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we praise you for the many blessings you have out to us in Jesus. We thank you for all the gospel benefits we enjoy because of what you did, because of your suffering, because of your life, death, and resurrection. We get to be called your children. We get to come into your presence this morning. And Lord, this morning I ask that you would help us to see that just as we've been reconciled to you, your heart is that we would be reconciled in our relationships to one another. Lord, would you help us to see how the gospel connects to the way we treat, the way we relate with other people. And Holy Spirit, would you guide us into the way of Christ, not the way of the world. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want to do a little exercise here, a little poll. How many of you have experienced in your life relational difficulty? Raise your hand. Let's just see there. Okay. All right. Most of you are being honest. Some of you are lying. Uh, Every one of us, if you've lived on planet Earth, have experienced relational conflict, relational tension, and difficulty. We have all been sinned against, and we've sinned against others. You see, human beings have a relationship problem. 
And this problem goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 at the beginning of your Bible, right? We, we've recalled the creation story a few weeks ago, but if we go all the way back to the story, we see Adam and Eve created by God living in this lush, perfect garden, all their needs met. They're even walking with God in the cool of the day. Um, you know, they're given this beautiful mandate to, to subdue the earth, to cultivate it, and to fill it with babies, with image bearers of God. And what happens in the story, right? The, the serpent enters the scene, Adam and Eve end up, you know, God had given them this one uh, command to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We all, most of us know the story. What do they do? They believe the lie of the serpent over the word of God. And they sin, they rebel against God and his gracious rule. And this results in a catastrophic separation between them and God. There's a vertical crack that happens in their relationship with God where now they're cast out of the garden, they're cast out of God's presence. And we also see that this affects them relationally. In fact, right after this whole scene takes place, we see Adam and Eve who were living in peace and harmony and shalom, if we, if we might use that word. We see them fighting. We see them start to blame each other. We see that the vertical separation has horizontal implications. Sin creates a fracture of relationship between humanity and God, and this vertical separation plays out horizontally in the way that we relate with one another. I often say that the rest of Genesis, at least through chapter 12, is a, is a, is a story of, of the continuation of this human brokenness in relationships. You only have to read one chapter further to see that this relational brokenness of Adam and Eve has been passed on to their children. As Cain and Abel, you know, these kids aren't just fighting. Like, you complain about your kids fighting, like, oh, they're fighting over a toy. They, 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 Cain murders his brother Abel. Like, things get heated quickly. Like relationships are broken. You keep reading in the Old Testament story, just going in Genesis, you see that Abraham throws his wife under the bus. He lies, right? You see um, Jacob and Esau, there's, there's favoritism in parenting and there's, there's kids who are fighting against each other and at war with one another. We see Joseph who's sold into slavery by his brothers, we go on fast forward in the, in the Old Testament, we see that King David was, although he was a man after God's own heart, he was violent and adulterous. And that's putting it lightly. We, know, we see his son Solomon continue his patterns of womanizing with many wives and living a hedonistic lifestyle, broken in his way of relating to others. And these are some of the heroes of the Old Testament. Like we could, we could go on and I could give you hundreds of examples of relational brokenness in the scriptures. And all of us are born into this world of relational brokenness. You see, this horizontal aspect of sin, of brokenness in our relationships, it shows up in our marriages as they break down, as they struggle, as the divorce rate is inching higher and higher. It shows up in children and in parents, the difficulty of raising kids, and even times when kids are grown, the estrangement that exists even between a father and a child or a mother and a child. It shows up in some of our closest friendships that, that break down over time and, and conflict tears us apart and the way we relate eventually hurts others or we are hurt by them. 
It's infected the way we relate with people outside our family, the way we relate with neighbor, those in our city, those in our world. You see, there are long-standing patterns of human beings relating through violence, through cruelty, through competition, through favoritism, partiality, tribalism, ethnocentrism, oppression, deceit, betrayal, abuse in all forms, vengeance-seeking. And here's one of the points I want us to see. Sin is not private. Sin does not just end upon us. Sin is always relational. Even what happens in in private, in darkness, it always flows out into the way we relate with other people. You see, when my heart is captivated by something other than God, I decide to let someone other than Jesus rule my actions, my attitude. Guess who pays for it? Those closest to us. Your spouse, your roommate, your children, your family, your community. I think about this. When, when our hearts become uh, consumed with the worship of success or career, And that becomes kind of our our centering identity, that I have to be this and I have to become this. Who pays for it? Who pays for those long hours at the office? Who pays for it when you're at home, you're not actually home and present, but you're maybe in your head? Your wife, your children, your friends, those closest to you, certainly your neighbor who you might not have a single hour for because your heart is consumed with something other than Jesus. You see, no matter how much it feels like just our choice and our sin, sin is always communal. It always has a relational impact. Hidden in private sin always gets out. When you're privately addicted to porn, your families and others will be impacted. What you do in darkness and what you hide in darkness, always others are going to pay the price as well. They're going to pay the price that when you feel ashamed and you feel distant, they're they're going to pay for you not showing up. You see, sin that starts vertically, and that is very important, and we've talked about this, changes the way we show up and relate with other peoples. It destroys our capacity to give and love and show up as a loving presence that God made us to do. When we're loose with gossip or slander of others in private or behind others' backs, the relationships hurt from it. The vertical problem of sin is always working its way horizontal. And whatever or whoever we give our worshiping allegiance to will guide how we show up with other people, how we treat them, how we speak to them, how we act toward them. It sets the tone for what kind of presence we are in our relationship with others. Titus 3.3 sums this this problem up really well. We actually went over this, I think, a few months ago. Titus 3.3 says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, relational terms, hated by others and hating one another. You see the cycle. You know the cycle. 
In fact, sometimes our mistreatment of others or even our private sin as a result, we were sinned against, but rather than turning to God and getting help and, and, and growing through that, we justified our mistreatment of others. And it's a vicious cycle that human beings have been living in uh, since really the very beginning, since the fall. But there is good news, friends. The implications of the gospel are not just for you personally. They're not just for you, you and God. They're for you. They're for us. They're for us and our life together. They're for our relationships. The gospel of Jesus brings hope for healing and wholeness in your relationships, in the way that you relate to others in the world. In fact, this is one of the primary concerns that we see in all of Scripture. You know, Jesus, when asked, the, what is the greatest commandment? To love the Lord your God with all your heart. And then what? Love your neighbor as yourself. Right? This is one of God's primary concerns. And part of being adopted into God's family, y'all remember that gospel benefit from last week of adoption, that we're welcomed as family? Part of the benefit of that is that your heavenly Father is committed to teaching you as his son or daughter how to love others in his family. He has a different way for his family to relate than when we were once orphans living in the world. And this happens as we're instructed and empowered to live out our identity as God's children. And there's really, I mean, as I was trying to summarize this this week, there's so much we could say about that. There's so many, I mean, we could go to hundreds of scriptures that talk about the importance of how we relate with one another, how we relate in our families, in our church, in our city. But I wanted to sum it up with three major lessons, three major ways that the gospel instructs the way we relate to one another. So here's, here's lesson number one or instruction number one, okay? The gospel transforms who we associate with and how we associate with them. The gospel transforms who we associate with and how we associate with them. You see, on our own, kind of in our orphan way, we'll use that terminology, in our way of living that we learn, the way we learn to relate apart from Christ, we tend to congregate with people who are like us. We tend to accept people and welcome people into our lives who think, act, and feel like we do. We tend to value people on the basis of what can they offer us, right? Can they reflect back to us what we want to kind of see in ourselves, right? We, we all know that. We all know this. We've experienced this. James uh, talks about this in James chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. He says this, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothes comes in, and a poor man in shabby clothing comes in, also, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom of God, which he has promised to those who love him? You see, we're all prone to welcome and favor those who have much to offer us, who look like us, who think like us. We avoid those who the world avoids. But this is our old way. 
This is our old way. You see, if I pride myself, if I find my identity and my worth in my ethnicity, in my age, in my social class, in my athleticism, I've learned this lesson, by the way, don't do that, it fades, in my fitness, in my career position, we could go on and on, right? Then I'm going to extend that metric of judgment to others. And I'm going to welcome and value those who, who, are, who are valuing what I value. I'm going to judge them as I judge myself. I'm going to bond with those who are like me because ultimately, not because I love them, but because they add to my ego. They kind of support the myth I tell myself about myself. And conversely, I will associate, while I'm associating with people who look and think like me, I'm going to separate myself from those who don't. And we don't have time today to go in the myriad of ways that people around the globe, this isn't just an American phenomenon, it's not just something we struggle with, around the globe, humanity struggles with this. To judge and value one another based on external things. But I want us this morning to see that this is an issue that the gospel speaks very loudly and clearly towards. You see, Jesus died not to create a clique or a cult, but to create a diverse family from every tongue, tribe, and nation. He welcomes us based on our common bond in Christ, not on our common social class, ethnicity, age, country, on and on. And while God did reveal himself through the Jewish people and in their unique culture, his intent from day one was that every culture would come and bow before him as king. That his gospel would be a blessing, you know, going back to Abraham, for all the nations of the earth. You see, God's family is a diverse family where all the nations of the earth are welcomed based on the basis of their common faith in Christ, not their interests or what they look like, right? Not on, on what they cook or, or how they talk. The basis of belonging in the kingdom is not heritage, political party, ethnicity, social status. The basis of belonging is a common trust and loyalty to King Jesus. It's a common recognition that we have, that, that we say, you know what? We are really bad rulers of our own life. You know what? We, we've blown it relationally. We don't, we don't know how to do this life thing. We don't know how to, to relate well with other people. And we need mercy. We need grace. We need new life. We need forgiveness and new life in Jesus. Let me just remind you, church, that you're not here because you're superior. You're not here because you're a religious elite who climbed a ladder and now you sit there in, in arrogance and, and, you know, like, and I'm not saying you guys do that, but I want to just remind us, we are here by the grace of God alone. That's how we get in. You see, and when the gospel lowers us to the proper place, a, a right estimation of ourself, then we can view others, every tongue, tribe, and nation, with the appropriate lens. We are transformed into a people who celebrate and welcome every tongue, tribe, and nation. And this, in fact, church, is our glorious future. Austin talked a little bit about Revelation 7 a few weeks ago, but I want to remind you of this text. 
It says in Revelation 7, 9 through 12, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and all the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces and the throne and worshiped God saying, Amen. Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever. Amen. The gospel creates a diverse family from every tongue, tribe, and nation. For those who've elevated your identity based on one of those characteristics of the world, one of those things in creation, the gospel's going to lower you. <laughs> For those who've maybe lowered your, you know, you, you've lowered yourself or you're because of your ethnicity, whatever it is, the gospel's going to lift you up. It's going to equalize all of us at the foot of Jesus and say, hey, God welcomes us based on his love for us, not on what we achieved or who we are or what we look like. Now, at the same time, I want to say this. This does not mean that God doesn't care about your culture, that he doesn't care about your personality, that he doesn't care about your uniqueness. We, we want unified, uh, to be a unified, diverse family, not a uniform cult, right, or clique, um, there is a dignity and a beauty given to all the peoples of the earth. Every language, every culture, there is dignity. God-given glory in those cultures. Some of it needs to be redeemed. Some of it needs to be rejected, including our own culture. But God has given it. And so the gospel doesn't, doesn't dis disintegrate all our, our difference. It doesn't make us colorblind or cultureless. The gospel, de however, decenters our efforts to identify primarily on something other than God. That our firmest, deepest identity is not an American or a patriot or a liberal or a conservative, but our deepest identity is son or daughter of God, kingdom of a uh, citizen of heaven. Amen? And so here's what happens. When that centers us, then we can look outward to those other things that are important, but not ultimate, and we can value and celebrate our differences, and we can, we can say that God is not only worshipped in my culture, but he's worshipped and glorified in other cultures, and he's put things in them that glorify him in ways that, that mine doesn't, and he's given things in mine that glorify him in ways that others don't. And all together, we need all of it to display his manifold wisdom and glory. You see, the gospel doesn't create a family that's a cult or where everyone looks the same. That's one of the saddest things is when you see a certain culture start to dominate. And then to be Christian means to be and look like this, this person. I think sometimes we see this most clearly in cults. Um, I also like cult podcasts and documentaries. I don't know if that's weird or, or not, but I like listening. Um, I've got to work through that in my own heart. But recently, I listened to a podcast about the Heaven's Gate cult, which I'm not going to go into much of the, the cult. But one of the things about them is that by the end of their time, they all had kind of this standard uniform. And it was kind of these space suits, which I'm also a space nerd. So that's kind of, you know, it's like an interesting intersection of religion and all, all this. So anyways, they had these uniforms. And I began wondering... You know, like, okay, like you think of armies, you think of, you think of different groups, and they have these uniforms that kind of unifies them together. And I began to think of the church. I was like, what's, 
what's our uniform? Like, do we have a uniform? What, what would that even look like? Like, we look, we're dressed so different. We're, you know, so diverse in our tastes and cultures. And I felt like in that moment, I just kind of realized, had this realization, our uniform isn't the external things, but it's the inward character of the heart. Colossians 3, uh, 12 through 14 says this. Here's, here's our uniform. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. You see, there's not one way a Christian dresses. I know there's cultures, maybe some of you grew up in, that, you know, nice suit, but whatever it is. There's not one way. That's okay. But the character of the heart, the, the glory of Jesus residing in us expresses itself in, in thousands of ways, right? In, in robes, in our, in our brothers and sisters, maybe in high church, in, in other countries, you know, different garb that they wear. Like, there's, there's so many ways we can externally adorn and express him. But inwardly, we're uniform, and that it's Christ in us. It's these characteristics that he's forming. That's our uniform as the church. You see, and in, in the gospel doesn't just change the way we relate to those inside the church. It also shapes the way we relate to those outside the church. You know, we, we talk a lot about how we are to be as a family. A simple application for how do we to treat outsiders is, well, let's just treat them like family. Let's love them like they're our family. Now, will we have disagreements and will we have different doctrines and convictions? Absolutely. But we're still called to love others, our neighbor, like their family. And guess what? What God's going to do through that is some of them are going to become part of God's family. We don't, we don't know who. We don't know who's going to come in. We just know that we want to love one another as Jesus has loved us. We want to associate with, with all those on the basis of Christ, and we're going to have that same principle as we relate to others in our, in our city. I mean, think about your neighbors. Are there certain neighbors maybe that you avoid, that you don't knock on their door, you don't give an invitation to dinner, that you don't invite to the party? As Christians, we should be a people who, who we are loving everyone like family. Yes, we might have to have some hard conversations. Yes, we have, have things that are foundational to who we are but we love everyone like family. You see, the ultimate expression of gospel-shaped love and how we associate in the world is a love of others. Jesus even pushed this as far as to say, how do you treat your enemy, your, your wor the worst person out there? How did he, what did he say? Love your enemies as yourself. This is who we are to associate with and how we associate with them. Lesson number two, we already heard this a little bit in our text in Colossians, but the gospel gives us a new capacity to forgive. The gospel gives us a new capacity to forgive. Have you realized that the default mode of the human heart is to fight back, right? Like if someone were to come up and punch me, my initial response would be, I'm going to punch them back probably twice, Right? Maybe some of you are like, I'm not, I'm just going to get help and run, you know. I, I'm, I, you, you get this, right? When, when children fight and they steal, you know, one steals a toy, what's the response? Well, I'm going to take your toy. It's kind of a this for that cycle. Again, it's, it's hating and being hated. 
This can be as small as in your marriage. Your spouse uh, forgets your anniversary. And so you pay them back, maybe by not talking to them for a few days, right? The this for that kind of exchange. Maybe a child messes up, they, they, they make a mistake, and you hold it over their head for weeks, and you won't let it go. You're begrudging about it. Maybe says, someone says something in, in a gospel community that crosses the line, and, and you refuse to even talk to them about it let alone extend forgiveness. You see, the gospel stops the cycle of this for that, of hating and giving hate. Look at Ephesians 4.32, one verse here, very simple. It says this, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. So what's the instruction? The instruction is be kind, tender-hearted, forgive. And the power or the reason to do so because God in Christ forgave you. You see, forgiven people forgive. You realize how much you've been forgiven in the gospel. It creates in you a humble, kind-hearted tenderness that when someone wrongs you, you have a new capacity to extend forgiveness. Now, I'm not saying that this is easy. I'm not saying that every scenario that we are involved in should be simple, right? Like, just forgive them. You know, they murdered a family member. Forgive them. You know, you got to be best friends. Like, that's, right, that's an extreme example. But in general, our posture towards others in community, maybe a neighbor who, who parks in front of you, you know, who, who does something to your lawn or whatever, like our posture should be people who long to get, extend forgiveness and who when we wrong others, we pursue forgiveness. This is what the gospel does to us. It gives us a new capacity for forgiveness. Again, it doesn't mean there's no consequences. It doesn't mean that in certain severe instances of abuse or hurt that we don't have boundaries and there's not legal consequences, right? If your neighbor, you know, does something illegal, we need to deal with it legally. But in our hearts, I'm not spending the rest of my life begrudging. I'm longing for forgiveness, and even in scenarios where the other person, maybe it's not a, a mutual thing, the, the posture of our heart should be, we want to be a people who extend forgiveness. Why? Because we have been forgiven much. Forgiven people forgive. That's what we want to do. Reconciled people reconcile. We don't want to stir up division. We don't want to cause more problems. We want to see relationships flourish. We want to see people come together around Christ. We don't want to see people divide. See, the gospel transforms our heart towards a people who long for forgiveness, a people who, when they wrong others, seek forgiveness. And we give it not making people atone for their sins, right? You don't, you don't tell your child when they mess up, hey, Okay, well, if you'll do X, Y, and Z, then I'll love you again, or I'll give you forgiveness. You say, hey, honey, sweetie, buddy, Jesus died so that you can be freely forgiven. And, and, and me, daddy, I know what it's like to need forgiveness, and so I just want to extend and remind that forgiveness to you. Gospel creates a, a tender-hearted, forgiving people. And then third, our last instruction, last lesson 
is the gospel compels us toward radical generosity. You see, God's family is a generous family, not hoarding our, our stuff, our time, talent, treasure for ourselves, but following in the steps of Jesus who gave everything. We are looking to give to others. What better way than to see this example in the ancient church at work, the early church in Acts 2. Uh, you've probably read this passage a hundred times, but let's look at Acts 2, 42 through 47, just to get a window into this generous people that we're a part of. It says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing to the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. You see, the early church is a generous church. Now, I want, to, I want to remind you of something because th this generous church did not emerge out of some legalism where they were told, you guys need to be generous, right? Like, just be generous. Right before this, earlier in chapter 2, something called Pentecost happened where they, these early disciples are gathered, they're fearful, they're in, behind closed doors, and the Holy Spirit pours out on them just in a way that changes the world, really, it pours out on them in this, this very amazing way. You see, they are being generous because God has freely and generously given his very spirit to them. Generosity flows when we are filled with the spirit of Christ. When we are filled, we no longer have to be greedy. When we are full, we don't have to look at life as, as filling our bucket because we have something to offer. We have something to give to others. You see, the early church and, and, and brothers and sisters throughout church history have at times been so taken with the inheritance they have in Christ that it allows them to freely hold out what they have here on earth. And the gospel creates a people who want to be like their dad, who they see God as a giver and they say, I want to be a giver. They see Jesus instructing and saying, hey, I'm just telling you guys, it's better to give than receive. Like that wasn't just a, a, a lie. <laughs> that was true. And they say giving and generosity, that's where it at. Hoarding and greed and storing for me, that's what the orphan who, who is fearful that they have nothing does. But someone who is filled with the love of Christ, who realizes all the inheritance they have in him, they open their possessions, they open their talent, they open their time and their treasure and say, God, use it to bless others. You, you've blessed me, now make me a blessing to those around us. The gospel creates a people who are generous, who stop the zero-sum game of competition and comparison who see that in the kingdom of heaven, there's plenty for everyone, who agree with Jesus that it's better to give than to receive. I think this is a, a timely word for us as a people who live in a, in a relatively wealthy and successful culture. Um, I think for us, we, we sometimes, you know, in the kingdom of heaven, uh, we're kind of the awkward ones in. We're kind of like, the, if, if you've got a table in heaven, 
uh, and we come up to it, you know, kind of dressed nice. Like I'm, a lot of people, have, you know, might be looking around like, hey, what, are they okay in here? Like where on earth it's, it's you know, the, we're eating in our table and, and the poor come up and we're like, hey, are they, should they be here? Like in heaven, it's flipped. In heaven, it's flipped. In the kingdom of heaven, it's like, hey, are those, are those rich guys okay here? What are they going to do? Like, and I think that should humble us in a sense that we say, okay, is it okay for us to, to live in a, in a wealthy culture? And if it is, what should we do? And I'm so thankful that the Apostle Paul, I don't know that he foresaw us coming, but the Lord did, gave us a word for us who are relatively wealthy. I'm not saying all Jeff Bezos, but relatively wealthy in the eyes of the world. Look at, look at what we're instructed. Paul tells Timothy, he says, as for the rich in this present age, them not to be haughty, right? So don't find our identity in our wealth. Don't find your worth in your wealth. Find your identity in Jesus. Nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, right? Riches can fade. Stock markets can fall. Economies can crash. But on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Now here's the question. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, be generous and ready to share. The storing for themselves as good, a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Awkward when we're kind of in the kingdom, there's, there's good news for us. If God has materially he's blessed you with an abundance of talent, if he's blessed you with an abundance of time, um, here's the good news. There's space for you and if God has made you wealthy, it's so you can be wealthy in good works. You see, you see the connection? If God has blessed you richly, then it's so you can be a rich blesser, that you can give. Not because you're, you're favored or you're better or you're smarter or he loves you more, but it's so you can extend that to others. And I think there's, there's a posture that we need to have, it, almost like a like suspicion of, of wealth, not a, like a loving it and making it central to our lives, but like, hey, I, I just want to make sure that I'm stewarding my time and my talent, and my treasure in a way that honors him, and I don't become haughty or arrogant and puffed up because of these things. And it would be silly for me to assume that living in this air, that we aren't tempted towards that. So I just want, I want to say that word. Like, there's space for us. There's also a warning in here for us, and there's also a humbling thing for us to realize that, hey, we're kind of the awkward ones at the table in the kingdom of heaven. And the gospel teaches us to be generous. We are not a greedy people. So brothers and sisters, when needs come up in this family, we are quick to meet them. We are seeing them as opportunities. Oh man, we get to get on the stuff that is real life, giving and blessing other people. When a neighbor has a need, it's not, oh gosh, you know, crazy Susie over there has it, has it again. Like it's, oh my goodness, another opportunity to bless. You know, I've got this long, I've got this ability, I'm going to go mow her yard, Right? I've got this extra time and, and she seems so lonely. I'm going to go talk with her and give her my presence. Maybe it's financial. Maybe it's time. Maybe it's talent. Whatever it is that we have, the gospel teaches us to use it for the blessing of others, for the building up of his and the good of our city, not to be greedy. There's so much more we could say. I know that I don't, I know, I don't want to keep you too long. There's so many more verses we could look at because God cares deeply about how we relate to one another. The gospel is 100% applicable 
to our relationships. This is something near and dear to our Father's heart. It's not that by, by relating in these ways our place or that we earn something before God, but it's as we relate based on the gospel, we come to know God more fully. We come to be assured that in fact we are God's children. It's not the cause of us being his children, it's the evidence of us being his kids. I want to close with this verse from 1 John 4, verse 7 through 12. He says, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this love, God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to the the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, If God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. John also says in this letter that how can we say we love a God who we cannot see when we don't love our brother and sister who we can see? So here's where I want us to close. There's probably one of these areas, one of these lessons that you're realizing, you know what, man, I am blown it relationally. I've been so greedy with my time. I've been so greedy with my money. Or I've been only associating with people who, who are like me. In fact, I, man, I avoid certain people even in the church because they just, you know, um, it's awkward. Or maybe you just realize you, you've been holding a grudge. You haven't been extending to your spouse, to a child, or to someone here, and, and And here's the call this morning. You see, all of us who are in Christ are in a process of learning to live in God's family. And so as a gracious, gentle father, what God wants us to do when we recognize that is to repent, is to turn and say, I am I've gone back to living like an orphan. I've been treating people terribly. I've been learning a lot about you, but it's not translating. It's actually making me proud. I want to learn your way of loving and relating well. Would you help me? Would you take me back to the depths of what you've given me in the gospel so that I can forgive, so that I can be generous, so that I can associate with those that you've called me to associate with? And so this morning, I want to give you time to just just think on that, and then I'm going to close this in a word of prayer and just ask the Spirit to help us be a people who relate differently because of the gospel. Let's pray. Thanks for listening. If you are looking for info, find our website at RedeemerRR.org or download the Redeemer Round Rock app from the Android or iOS app store.